This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Wide Place in the Road, a greatest generation story written by author Richard C. Kirkland, who joins me from somewhere in the east coast of the United States, Virginia, I believe. Welcome, sir. Yes, sir. Virginia. Welcome to the program. Your book is uh, 564 pages. It's not the first book you have authored. Tell me a little of your background and why this particular book is of interest or should be of interest to my listeners. Uh, well, uh, <clears throat> I I was a World War II uh, veteran and a uh, and, and also a Korean War veteran, and um, and then during the Vietnam War, I did a lot of t- training with pilots and things. So. Uh, I decided uh, that that was uh, the whole thing together made a pretty good story, so I just decided to go ahead and uh, and put it in in writing. I had written a, a, a few other books uh, about my experiences and about my experiences as a helicopter pilot after the after the war. I got into helicopters, so um, uh, I decided to write the book and what what uh, the, the title "Wide Place in the Road." Uh, uh, prompted uh, what prompted that is on a, uh, one occasion during World War II, I had an opportunity to talk to Douglas, General Douglas MacArthur, and uh, one of his questions to me he says, uh, uh, "Where are you from, so, uh, son?" He called all everybody below him "son." Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. said, well, well, uh, and I said, "Well, um, <clears throat> I'm from a, a, a little place called." Uh, uh, white place. Oh, I'm sorry. A little place called Beck, and he said, "Well, where is where where is that?" And I said, "Oh, it's a, it's just a, a wide place in the road, sir." And he said, "Well, all right, ah. wide place in the road." <laughs> so that's uh, why I uh, got the idea of using that title. It's catchy. Uh, it, it it does grab your attention. Now, you you your beginning education was in a one room schoolhouse, like many of those uh, of that generation, and even currently, there are still a yeah. few of those one room schoolhouses out there. Well, how did that impact your life? Uh, well, it's uh, I, I don't I don't know. It seems uh, a little different, of course. Uh, the one-room schoolhouse. Uh, you would think that uh, you don't get a lot of, you don't get a real good uh, education there. But as a matter of fact, I think I did. Uh, my little old school teacher was a very dedicated old lady, and uh, well, she was not old when I first started. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I think uh, she gave me a pretty good start in life. And then, of course, past uh, grammar school, then we went, uh, we bust to the nearest town, which was Bakersfield, which was about 40 miles uh, down the road. And that, then I finished my uh, uh, high school there, and then subsequently got my degree at the University of Oklahoma. Your book, your title, Wide Place in the Road, has been described, but on the other hand, this is not just a, uh, it's not a memoir. It, it does perhaps draw from your experience, but this is a, a fictional novel, is it not? Uh, well, it's fictional, but it's based on uh, on my experiences. Right. So it's uh, it's sort of an autobiography, with names changed to protect the guilty. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> describe your uh, describe your main character. Uh, my my uh, the the main character uh, is pretty much followed my my life. Uh, I based it on him, uh, based it on myself and my experiences. Uh, I took some liberties, of course, because it, you know <laughs> uh, it, it is a, it is fiction, but it is based on 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 my uh, experiences. Beginning, of course, uh, growing up in in the Tatchby Mountains uh, uh, and uh, running over the countryside barefooted, and and then enlisting in when the, when Pearl Harbor broke out, uh, enlisting in the Army Air Corps, and then going on going to the the uh, South Pacific as a fighter pilot, and, uh, and I flew 103 combat missions in, uh, 
and fighters, P-38s and P-47s, with the famous Flying Knight Squadron. Mm. That was uh, America's top ace of all time, Dick Bong's squadron, uh, and I was fortunate to be assigned to that squadron. And so uh, I spent uh, all through the South Pacific uh, in all kinds of missions, in P-38s and P-47s. Uh, Jesse, is, so that, the, is Jesse the name that you've given to your main character? Uh, yes, the 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 the, um, the main character, of course, as I say, is patterned after myself. Right. And uh, and and so it, it follows along pretty much uh, my experiences in in and in the, and then after the war, uh, when the war was over, I went to work for Howard Hughes, which was a, quite an experience in <laughs> itself. And I spent a number of years after that. Uh, working for him and flying for him and doing demonstration work and that sort of thing. So uh, I ended up uh, uh, with a quite a quite a fun experience life. Absolutely. <laughs> it, it certainly sounds like it. Now, the time frame that this novel is set, describe that for us. Uh, the, the novel starts uh, with uh, by boyhood uh, in, uh, in, in, during the Great Depression. And uh, living in in, uh, in the in the mountains, the Hatchby Mountains, as a country boy, Boy Scouts, and running over the hills and that sort of thing, and then enlisting in in the Army Air Corps uh, after Pearl Harbor, and uh, and it follows all that. And my experiences then as a fighter pilot, uh, and then when the war was over, as I say, I I. Uh, uh, I stayed in the military for a little bit, and uh, I was just kind of wanted to fly the new jets. So I, I stayed a little bit uh, so I could fly the jets, and then all of a sudden, bang, uh, career broke. Mm. So uh, I hadn't planned to make a career of the, mil- of the military, but th- then so I was in it, and then we had another war on our hands. Mm. But interestingly enough, uh, I had checked out on a helicopter. And, of course, in those days, a helicopter was one of those wild, vibrating things that you kind of looked at in, in amazement that it even would fly. Mm-hmm. Those first Sikorskis were pretty crude. But lo and behold, uh, I find myself in Korea uh, as a helicopter pilot. And, uh, and, of course, those early helicopters were pretty primitive. And, of course, we had no guns, uh, not, like, uh, not like Vietnam. These were... Pretty, uh, the helicopters in Korea were strictly for rescue work, and uh, and we we what we did in in uh, in uh, during that part of the the thing and during that war uh, was to rescue downed pilots. The first uh, jet air d- wars were were during the during the Korean War, and uh, and uh, and those uh, jet pilots uh, did the first combat. Uh, of the jet war, mm-hmm. and they would crash, of course, and they'd get shot down, and uh, and we would be we would go pick them up, fish them out of the Yellow Sea, and uh, and save their lives, and I did a lot of that uh, during the Korean War, and I also was just, uh, flew with the 8055 Mash uh, with with Hawkeye. Uh, there was a real Hawkeye incidentally. Was there? Uh, uh, yes, indeed. Uh, 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 he he was a character and uh, just almost like the like the long running series uh, Mash. Uh, in the Mash, we we flew up onto the onto the battlefield uh, with the primitive old Sikorsky helicopters, uh, but we managed to do a great job and and we saved uh, during the Korean War and uh, my tour there. Uh, we saved uh, almost ten thousand lives. Uh, Evacuating soldiers off the battlefield and picking up uh, downed jet pilots from the Yellow Sea. So that was a uh, most ex- uh, uh, most uh, experience that I really en- I really enjoyed. Well, you drew for some some uh, phenomenal life experiences in putting your book together. But again, you mentioned it is fiction. However, what was the most exciting uh, scene that you have created in your book? Uh, I think the, the I think the theme uh, uh, mostly was uh, just uh, the experience of uh, uh, my military experience and 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 the two wars and then and then in uh, the to- first atomic bomb test, uh, which I also w- was had a part in, and um, 
uh, so I just put it all together in, in a fashion that that was, I think, interesting and uh, uh, based on based on facts, actual facts. Uh, I took some liberties, of course, uh, but all in all, it, it was it's a an account, a historical account of that era of American history. Describe for my listeners the reader that you think is going to enjoy your novel the most. Well, I think uh, anyone who who enjoys adventure, uh, real real adventure. Uh, this not this is not fictional adventure. This is real, all based on real stuff. So you can kind of look at read, read my book, and you're getting a you're getting a cross section of history during that period of time, beginning in pre World War II times and going right on up through uh, uh, the World War II through the Korean War and uh and then ending ending up in uh in uh in uh civil war, civil use of helicopters. Uh my wife just reminded me <laughs> that this was the 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 early part of this was of course during the Great Depression. So there's a lot of interesting stuff about that too in my life, living through the Great Depression and then and then the all the Things that happened when Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor, and uh, and then uh, of course on down the line. So it's a, it's a bit of history, uh, and it's all based on true stuff. Uh, I took some liberties, as I just said, sure. but basically it's a it's a historical picture of that era in American history, which was a that era of. Um, uh you know uh, the 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 people of that era were a little were they they met the challenge of uh, of course the world war 2 and then the challenge of of the korean war and uh the great depression uh we lived through and then uh, and then of course uh, world war 2 uh, richard how and long did it take how long did it take you to remember and recount this story and put it into print uh, I spent uh, a good part of a year writing the book. Uh, it, it was. It, it, I did. I did a lot of research, of course, to make sure I had all I remembered what I thought I remembered. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, I'd got all the facts uh, laid out, and then I did some research on some of the times and dates and incidents and in, uh, in, in the Battle of Leyte Gulf, which I was a part of, which was the largest sea battle in history. And, uh, and of course, uh, having flown with the top ace of World War II, uh, I researched all that through my records and things to make sure that I had it pretty close to where it was. I took some liberties, of course. Sure. Well, it's remarkable. Uh, yes. But I, my second well was art. I was studying to be an artist when the war broke out, and uh, all through World War II and all through the Korean War, uh, I wrote short stories and I, I sketched and painted. So I have a whole gallery full of paintings and sketches and data that I say that I did during the, both the, the World War II and the Korean War and the subsequent development of the helicopter in America. Any possibility you may share those uh, those art pieces in a, uh, in a in a subsequent book to follow up. The wide place uh, on the road. Yes, uh, yes, I have thought about that, and uh, it's kind of on my myself. list of things to do. Sure. It's on the internet, and anyone who would be interested to see it uh, can just punch up my uh, richardccirkland.com, and uh, you can see all my artwork. Uh, and it's in a it's in a uh, a gallery that I have. A whole basement of my house is a gallery. Phenomenal, Richard. Since you were in World War II, uh, this is a delicate question, but uh, how old a gentleman are you? How old am I? Yes, sir. Ninety-one. Ninety-one years old, and yes, you're sir. And, and you're still planning to write and continue your artwork. Oh yeah, I, I'm. Uh, I'm. Uh, I'm writing away and uh, do a lot of artwork, and I do a lot of speaking. Congratulations. Uh, I speak uh, all over the twelfth over the uh, the Washington area. Uh, and of course, uh, I'm, I'm getting to be a bit rare, so uh, <laughs> so I could do all the speaking I could have time for, <laughs> which is uh, kind of interesting, and I like doing it. Phenomenal. And I speak to a lot of the schools uh, around uh, the secondary school system, and enjoy doing it. This book, titled "Wide Place in the Road," our author Richard C. Kirkland, 564 pages of memories and also fictional accounts of the greatest generation. Sir, where do we get copies of your book? Uh, uh, the, the book is um, is in uh, it's it's on the uh, the market now. You know you can get it in most book, most bookstores. Oh, Amazon.com, of course. Yes. 
you get it from Amazon and uh, and uh, um, uh, most of uh, libraries uh, have it. If not, they'll order it for you. They don't have it; they'll order it for you. They they sure can, and they can order it under Wide Place in the Road and under yes. the author Richard C. Kirkland. Sir, thank yes. you for joining me today and sharing your background story of an exciting life that you've shared in fictional form in Wide Place in the Road. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to to visit with you, and uh, good luck on your program. Phenomenal. For Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. This is Author Talk. I'm Brian Houston. We're glad to be with you this afternoon, and we are looking forward to talking about international affairs and a, a woman who has had uh, a great number of experiences. She's lived more life than uh, any 40 women I, I know. A fascinating story from a, a, a woman named May Rahani, who has written a book called Cultures Without Borders, From Beirut to Washington, D.C., and she is on the phone with us right now from her home. And uh, first of all, Ms. Rahani, thank you very much for being with us today. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. Tell me a little bit about yourself before we get into Cultures Without Borders from Beirut to Washington, D.C. Uh, thank you. I was born in Lebanon uh, and grew up in Lebanon and studied in a French school and went to an American university and then traveled to Paris and worked in Paris and then came to the U.S. and worked in the U.S. But as a result of the line of work I do, which is international development with a focus on education, I ended up working in more than 40 countries and traveling to 68, 69 countries, very close to 70 countries. So my career has been a journey, a global journey. And how many years does this span? Uh, 35 years. 35 years. Now, of all the experiences that you've had, uh, what one stands out to you? What, what was your most um, uh, memorable uh, time during that entire career? When I was working with the Shadow Ministry of Education in Afghanistan, uh, um, and when I was trying to understand why they're not convinced of sending girls to school, and after many meetings and several questions and uh, a v very difficult interaction at the beginning that became easier towards the end. And when I say towards the end, after three or four days of meetings, finally they told me they don't send their girls to school because the mullah told them not to send the girls to school because the religion doesn't allow them to send their girls to school. And it gave me the opportunity to explain to them that they were wrong that their religion never said that, Islam never said that, and I quoted the Qur'an where um, it says that education is the responsibility of every Muslim man and every Muslim woman. And it wasn't an easy meeting, but at the end I think I was able to convince them. Uh, I can imagine. Now what is it that sparked this passion to uh, champion women's rights internationally? It's a very good question. I think I was born uh, to parents that were very enlightened, very open-minded, and to parents who their vision of this world is where everybody can uh, have their own basic human rights, women and men, 
girls and boys, they have basic rights and all of them should have those basic rights. And amongst the basic rights is the right to education and, how- and the right to health, uh, access uh, health services and a right to a home and shelter and a roof on top of their heads and so on and so forth. So my parents were visionary and my parents had um, dedicated their life to serve others, and I think that they were my mentors. Was this a, a difficult position to take in the in the land where you were raised? Uh, not in Lebanon, no. Lebanon, uh, I grew up in Lebanon in the 50s and in the 60s and early 70s before I left and went to France, Paris, to Paris and France. Um, in those days, Lebanon was living its golden years, and Lebanon is, I would claim, the only diverse democracy in the Middle East, the only one. No, no other country in the Middle East can claim being a diverse democracy. And I lived that. Lebanon encouraged freedoms. I remember when I was a university student, we used to demonstrate in the streets. Nobody would arrest us. Uh, any uh, journalist could write an article against the president of Lebanon or any other president. Nobody goes to jail. So uh, uh, freedoms were extremely respected in Lebanon when I grew up there. So this must have been a, a wonderful nurturing atmosphere for you uh, when you went abroad and saw how different it might be for women elsewhere. Absolutely correct. Absolutely. I have to admit that uh, I privileged in many ways, and I um, was lucky to have many privileges. And because of that, I feel I have the responsibility to give back. And I have the responsibility to serve others because of that. Uh, I think with privilege comes responsibilities uh, of giving back. So yes, um, when I traveled to other countries and saw poverty, in some countries in Africa, in some countries in the Middle East, in some countries in Asia, I recognized more and more the big responsibilities I had. And one of those responsibilities, I guess, is in the form of this book that you've written, Cultures Without Borders, from Beirut to Washington, D.C., because it uh, it is able to uh, share all of these uh, magnificent experiences that you've had over all these years uh, in doing what you've done to try to uh, champion women's rights. I think you really put your finger on it. You're absolutely right. The reason why I wrote the book is because I felt my life was rich with many experiences, and it taught me many, many invaluable lessons. And I felt it is my duty to share those lessons with others, so I wrote the book. At what point did you determine that uh, all of these life experiences needed to be written down? During my last 10 years, I have been thinking about uh, writing the book, but I didn't have the time. I was way too busy. Uh, I was traveling a lot. I was working 14 hours a day, so I didn't have the time uh, until a year and a half ago. Did you, during the time that you were um, involved in all of these different adventures and endeavors, uh, did you journal or keep notes? Or I mean, because obviously when it's time to sit down and start to to compress this down into a book size, uh, you've got a a wealth of experiences to choose from. How difficult was it to pick and choose the ones that needed to be in this book? Very difficult, because uh, if I had to write everything, the book would be at least double, at least. I had to pick and choose, and already the book is 500 pages, a little over 500, and I didn't want it to be larger than that, bigger than that, thicker than that, so I had to choose. And yes, I had my technical reports about uh, where I worked, the countries I worked with, the ministries of education I worked with. I had a lot of writings about the projects and the programs that either I designed uh, or I um, oversaw the implementation of. So, yes, I had a lot of uh, written reports and written documents to go back to. How, how long did it take you to write the book? Uh, around 19 to 20 months. Just solidly mm-hmm. sitting and, and pecking away? Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's a, yeah. that's a real challenge, I would imagine, with 35 years' worth of material to go through. Yeah, absolutely. I do agree. All right. But so, a wonderful challenge. I, I can a imagine. A wonderful challenge, yeah. 
it, it must have been very gratifying too to go back through some of your experiences and reminisce as you wrote this. Absolutely. I relived many wonderful experiences, specifically experiences with rural girls and boys uh, in very remote areas, in very remote areas in what used to be called Zaire, for example, or the Congo today, or a remote area in Malawi, or in Morocco, or in Yemen, or in Pakistan, or in Guinea, or in Mali. So yes, I relived all of these wonderful moments with the children of Africa and the children of the Middle East and the children of Asia. Outstanding. So if you were to introduce this book to a friend, Culture Without Borders, from Beirut to Washington, D.C., it's published by Author House, uh, how would you go about introducing this book and telling someone about this book and why they should read it? I would start by saying that it's my memoir, and I would say that it's trying to capture... Uh, four or five maybe threads or themes, if you want, that I try to weave them in together. And and the themes would be the first one, because it is a memoir I start with my childhood. The first one is about the existence of freedoms in Lebanon, uh, while uh, other countries surrounding Lebanon did not have those freedoms. As a matter of fact, they were suffocating, I think, by repression and authoritarian regimes. Lebanon was the gem that encouraged freedom. So I write about that and the important role of Lebanon. Then when I started my career, of course, then I focus on girls' education. And I highlight in the book uh, the necessity for girls' education in any country in the world, but more so in countries that are struggling economically, because once they educate their girls, they will do better socially and economically. I think girls' education is a condition for the success of any country in the world uh, uh, in, in, on so many fronts, including the economic front. And then I talk about the necessity and the imperative of empowering women across the globe and the fact that without equality between men and women, countries cannot advance. And also there is a theme that's a bit more subtle about the idea of cultures without borders. And I do believe that there are a lot of common areas among different cultures. They're much harder to find. It's much easier to find the differences and much harder to find the common ground, but the common ground is there. And once we find it, then we celebrate those cultures more, understand them better, respect them more. And, and I believe the more we find the common ground amongst different cultures, the more we become international citizens. So when you write this book, who is it that you want to appeal to? Who is it that, uh, that you want to read this book? I really want the public at large to read it, women and men, young and old. But I think there are five natural, if you want, circles of people who would absolutely want to read this book. Anybody that worked in international development or anybody that... Uh, has the idea that cultures are important and we want to understand them better and respect them more. Uh, globalism is happening. So all of those people who have an international approach to things or experiences would want to read this book, meaning uh, people in the World Bank and the, the United Nations agencies and Peace Corps and USAID, all kinds of international organizations and their employees and people. So that's one circle of people. Another circle, you'd be amazed that there is a growing professional network of people who are involved in human development and specifically girls' education. And those people want to read that book. And, and that circle is growing to be, becomes after, or is linked, if you want, to another circle of women's empowerment people or professionals, and those want to read the book. And there is another circle of uh, interested individuals, either academicians or politicians or, or researchers, who are interested in Arab-American relationship. And because I'm an Arab, I'm a Lebanese woman who is an Arab woman who lived in the U.S. 
And because I look at both cultures, the American culture and the Arab culture or the Lebanese culture in particular, uh, those who are interested in those relationships between the USA and the Arab world would be very interested in this book. And finally, anybody who's interested in memoirs would want to read. But lately I've been thinking there is more, to, more than that. My book is really the, the opposite. The views in my book are the opposite views of what the extremists anywhere in the world, be it in Africa like Boko Haram or in the Middle East like ISIS, are claiming. I, I, it's a voice, my voice is a voice that says girls' education is a necessity, it's an imperative. Women's uh, equality with men is another imperative, and they say the exact opposite. So here's an Arab woman from Lebanon, from the Arab world, that's saying all of you extremists are wrong. And I think anybody interested in what's happening in the Middle East would be very interested in reading this book. And I don't know if, if you had planned it this way, but it couldn't have come at a better time for this book to be out now uh, when all of these things that you mentioned are going on right now and there are so much in the forefront of our news right now. You are absolutely right, and so many people who read the manuscript or knew about the book or read a synopsis about the book are saying exactly what you just said. Uh, they said this is so timely, this is so relevant, a voice from the Arab world, a women's voice from the Arab world who's saying ISIS is totally wrong, who's saying we they don't represent the majority, the, there is a silent majority, my voice represents them, not ISIS. So, yes, it is very timely, and I think the West wants, needs to read this book and the East, meaning the Arab world in particular, but also Africa, the South needs to read this book. I, I know in reading the synopsis about the book uh, that uh, there was, uh, the way it was written, it says that May Rehani's book is proof of the emptiness of three stereotypes. So it seems like you are able to shatter some myths uh, in your book as well. I hope so. I really hope so. And yes, there are stereotypes in particular about Arab women. I cannot tell you how many times I heard, are you really an Arab woman? And I say, absolutely, 100%. And they're, they're kind of surprised by this Arab woman who is a voice that underlines the importance of the equality between men and women, who's a voice that says women are leaders as much as men are leaders, and who somebody said your life is a proof of leadership, so yes. Yes, it shatters many stereotypes. What is one thing that you want readers to take away after reading your book? Mm, what a good question. Um, I think I would like for the readers, when they finish to, the book, to be thoughtful about the importance of gender equality, of the equality of men and women, girls and boys, and to recognize that it is an essential prerequisite for social and economic advancement for any country. Do you see a second book coming out about this? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and how soon? And how soon will we see not this? Not soon. Not soon. This book just came out, so uh, <laughs> I need to breathe a bit and continue my. I'm traveling next week to Saudi Arabia for a consultancy on education, and I'll be traveling to South Africa soon after for another consultancy on women's issues. So uh, it takes time to write books. But uh, yeah, there would be other books coming out, but not immediately. I understand. Uh, there is work to be done. All right. Yes. Uh, Cultures Without Borders from Beirut to Washington, D.C., published by Author House. Tell us where we can find the book. Uh, you can find the book online at Author House itself. You can go to Author House online and find the book. You can find it on Amazon online. You can find it on Barnes & Noble online. But you can also go to my own web page, website, and it's www.mayrihani, I'll spell it M-A-Y-R-I-H-A-N-I, dot com. And there you will read about my experiences, my work, my career, but also about the book. And you'll see the cover of the book, and you can buy it through the website also. Outstanding. Now, is there anything that I've left out, anything that I have not asked you that you would like to address uh, before we wrap up the interview today? You, you asked me some wonderful questions, and I was delighted with your questions. I just would like to end it by saying um, poverty in the world 
is one of our biggest problems, and one globally, globally, and one of the ways to combat poverty, to fight poverty, is to educate our children in Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia, anywhere, anywhere in Latin America, in the United States, if there are still children who are not going to school. We need to educate them, and we need to make sure that girls have access to schools and stay in schools and achieve in the schools as well as the boys. We need them both. And education is how we fight poverty. Very well said. May Rahani, the author of Cultures Without Borders, From Beirut to Washington, D.C., it's published by Author House. Ms. Rahani, thank you very much. Very inspiring story, uh, fascinating to uh, hear that all that you've done, and it sounds like you're nowhere near finished with your work. <laughs> you're right. You're absolutely right. Well, best of luck to you. Continued good work and, and great success with the book. Thank you again for taking time to talk with us today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the interview. Thank you. I'm Brian Houston. This is Author Talk. Again, the name of the book, Cultures Without Borders, from Beirut to Washington, D.C., written by May Rahani. Hope you will uh, check the book out. I think you'll find it very uh, enjoyable, inspiring, and educational. I'm Brian Houston. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. When nobody's home. The truth behind drug and alcohol addiction through the eyes of a probation o- through the eyes of a probation officer. This is the title of, of today's book. And our author, Michael S. Oden, joins me from California. Welcome, sir, to the program. Hey, good morning. It's nice to be here. This is a topical subject that impacts a lot of lives. You were a corrections officer and decided to to turn that effort into an accounting of uh, what happens and what is behind the addiction that's that's uh, plaguing our society. Would that be a, a correct observation? Yeah, yes, it would be, because I know there had to be more to it than calling somebody an addict, you know, uh, there had to be something that was driving somebody to use a certain drug or consume alcohol for, for a long period of time. And so what I did is I did research on my clients, over 8,000 of them, and I searched for that one common denominator most of the individuals had. And I discovered that it was usually from a traumatic experience from childhood. Mm. And they used, that from, uh, they used uh, the alcohol and drugs to numb their feelings about the memories of that event. So if I were so if I were to say that in a nutshell, it's just you get to numb your feelings so you don't feel or remember that event, and that's how they deal with it. Because nobody teaches you how to deal with trauma. Right. So you go through life sort of fragmented emotionally, and as you go through life, you still carry those emotions and those memories with you. And now you try to become an adult. You try to have a relationship. You try to go to work. You try to do all these things. But you still have those memories, you know, bogging you down. What type of, uh, specifically, I guess, I, I'm sure it's a wide range of a trauma that has affected children and uh, check, mm-hmm. uh, affected them into adulthood. Was there anything that you was uh, typically repetitive in your observations? Yes, I discovered that I'd say about 95% of my clients over that eight to nine year span uh, were fatherless children. Right. 
And then what you see is because of the father is not there to guide the child, the mother takes over, however, but she needs probably to work. So she's not there either. So then you have a child who is not getting any emotional, social needs met, and that's why I titled the book when nobody's home. So the child wonders, uh, well, is somebody going to guide me, love me, bond with me, care about me, matter to me, as opposed to um, somebody who's, who shows up and guides the child throughout their stages of development. And that was the biggest common denominator that, that I saw throughout that time. One thing I have observed in our society, I happen to live in a very sheltered t- town that has a lot of successful parents, and uh, they're maybe career-oriented, and these mm-hmm. children are growing up in homes that are, by outward appearances, very successful. And yet, mm-hmm. there is a, a lure, an attraction towards medication, and I'm not sure what is driving that. What do you think might be a contributing factor? Okay, so I've had that on, the, on my, uh, during my research. I've had all the rich kids from uh, various beach cities in L.A. to all the way to the South Central children, so the rich and the poor. The common, denator, the common denominator was the parent not being there. Now, the parent cannot, would not be there with the, uh, the poor people because they were in county jail right. or state prison. Now, in the wealthy environment, the parent was not there because they are running a law firm or they're, like I said, they're career-driven, so they're gone 16, 18 hours a day or taking a lot of trips. So, again, they're still not there. So the child has so much freedom to choose and make decisions at, a, at that age of development, usually the adolescent, early teenage years, that they're going to choose, of course, excitement. And I've talked to hundreds of those types of kids in that, in that environment. As a matter of fact, I talked to two last week. Father's very wealthy. But he's not there. The lure of excitement is part of the uh, the attraction. That part. The other part is this. The other part is doing with a group of people to get acceptance. Nobody's here watching me, so I'm going to join a group of people, and we're going to use this particular drug or alcohol. And guess what? We're all sharing and bonding because I don't get that in my other uh, part of my life. Fascinating. Thing is experimentation. Yes. Okay. So if you experiment, and I my question to them is, experiment has to have a thesis and a conclusion. So when does that end? So after a while, you're going to get your answer of how you react to the drug. Then you can make a decision, well, I can either do it and I can stop or I can keep going. Michael, why did you decide you wanted to share your story and their story in this book, When Nobody's Home? Um, I decided because I saw that some of the techniques that I was using or getting, uh, using on my clients was being very effective. I say 80% of my clients stopped using drugs because when they found out why they were using when they discovered that they didn't have a disease, but it was an emotional, uh, you're, you're trying to um, make up for your, the emotional loss of a parent, then they could actually do something about it. And I said, and I even asked my clients, I, I asked them, do you think this method is working? And they go, yeah, yeah, because no one ever told me that, you know, I was angry at my father for not being there, or angry at the fact that maybe I was molested, or angry at the fact that I was verbally or psychologically abused. You know, and that I use drugs to compensate or survive in that world at that time. And now I have an answer. And now I can take the burden off of me and thought, because I thought I was the problem, as most of them said. I thought I did something for the reason they were not there. And once they have that, that, that empowers them. They become this new individual, and i say about 50 to 75% of the emotional burden is dropped just by that one comment alone. And now they can start moving forward, and the healing process can begin. There has been a trend in counseling and in the news to label people who have addiction as being mm-hmm. diseased. That, right. in your estimation, really is not necessarily fact, is it? No, it's not. You know, if I call somebody an addict, that's not, that doesn't tell me anything. What I want to know is what drives the person to make that decision to use this particular drug and alcohol for a long period of time. And what I discovered was is this, is they're meeting a need. They're meeting a need to use drugs for a long period of time. Well, what's the need? The need usually is emotional safety. Mm-hmm. The need could be acceptance. You know, the need could be validation from a group of people. But there's something go behind the scenes and look at what they're getting out of it. Because a lot of the comments I get is this. I hung out with the wrong crowd. And my, my retort is this. No, they weren't the wrong crowd. They were the best crowd you could hang out with at the time because you were getting something out of it. Mm-hmm. 
And then they give you this inquisitive look. Well, that's a good point. I said, all I'm trying to do is get you to see why you did what you did, not blame or shame you for doing it, so you can do something different, so you can make better decisions in life. Uh, Chapter 3, you deal with making sense of the criminal thinking styles. What Uh styles have you discovered? Well, there's a technique, or there's there's a, uh, let's call it a technique, but a a method called um, brain dominance. Okay? And brain dominance basically is called the thinking style. And thinking styles is how we pay attention to things, you know, what we learn best, what turns us on. And what happens is, is a person's thinking style impacts how they make decisions in life. So here's, a, here's an example of a thinking style. A person may be, have the ability to get up, get in the car, and drive to San Francisco without thinking. Right? So that's sort of a, you know, uh, where you can take chances, where you don't think about the, 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 the future at that moment. Right where another person has to plan that same trip. Okay, they're more conservative, okay? And so what I discovered is that there's a lot of culture clashes in, uh, in a lot of my clients because the parents would walk over from Mexico, in this case. The parents would want them to have a job that, we would, that would, you would make something, you'd pay for it, and it's a tangible item. Well, when you, when you come to America, the, the first generation here, you have options of going to college. You can take graphic arts. You can do all kinds of other things. And the parents did not register that. Mm. Okay? So the parent wanted this, you know, go out to work, make it, get paid for it, and come home, so to speak. And the other person says, Mom, well, I'm going to be a graphic artist. Or, and the parent would go, what is that? Can, it, can you make something with that? Uh-huh. So I had, I had to get them to see where their frustration would come in because the client would, would be just frustrated they couldn't do the things they wanted to do because the parents would impose their culture on the decisions of the client. And they'd become so angry that they would use, of course, drugs to, you know, mask their anger and frustration because the parents they just did not get the fact that there were other ways of making a living without sort of making it with your hands. Difference, okay? in, difference in cultural uh, upbringing. Oh, absolutely. That's a, that's a big one. That's a big one. And, and just how each sees the world and, and where the clash comes in. And uh, I noticed that was, that was one of the biggest, that was really big with the Hispanic community because a lot of them were first generation. You have interviewed or based your book on over 8,000 interviews. Over what period of time and how long did it take to complete When Nobody's Home? Um, it took about... I started in 2000, late 2001, ended in about 2009, okay? And the book sat there in the computer for about three to four years. And I didn't write it because I'd never published a book before. It was just sitting there and it had all this information. And it wasn't until I, I uh, contracted cancer last year that I said, wow, so life is short. Hmm. So I better get this done. So you, so, sh- you shared you shared your heart, you shared your soul, you shared your information. Who did you want to reach with this this effort? Well, I, I wanted uh, parents uh, parents to to get an idea of of the of why people happen to use uh, you know illicit substances. I wanted teachers. I wanted um, the health the healthcare professionals. I want I wanted, I wanted anybody who, who who knows a friend of a friend who may have a problem. At least you'll, you'll get some understanding of, of, of why they may have started. So you can understand that this decision a person makes is not about the drug, it's about the experiences they had before them. Would you describe your book style as uh, conversational in its intent? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because what, it, what I want them to do is just talk about why, why people started in the first place. So we can explore behavior, we can explore the mindset, of that individual. So once, so when someone said, hey, you're an addict, well, there's more to it than that. What's really going on behind the scenes? You know, share, what are they running from? Share in a couple of sentences to my listeners a reason why they should get a copy of Nobody's Home. Well, uh, there's, number one would be this. They will get a better understanding of why people use drugs for a long period of time. And two, 
you will be able to make the adjustment or make a value shift as to what you can do now that you understand the idea behind drug use and alcohol dependency. Is there a message that comes through besides the obvious that's outlined on your cover? Yeah, the message would be this. Human behavior is about make is about somebody say navigating in the world. And if we choose to navigate in a way that's life diminishing, we need to understand why that is. If we can understand why that is, then we can make some changes and do something different that's more life beneficial or more life enhancing. Michael, this is a great read. Is there anything else in the future, maybe a sequel to this book? Yeah, I'm looking into uh, the book called The Mentality of a Fatherless Child, and which is about what inhibits a person or a child from moving on into the adult world, making decisions that, uh, like school, job, family, you know, why don't they move? Why do they stay in that rut and not be able to accomplish manhood, so to speak? Look forward to talking to you about that when that comes out as well. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. This, your first book, When Nobody's Home, is an invaluable resource for anybody that's in a counseling situation or parents of teens. The title, again, is When Nobody's Home, based on over 8,000 interviews. The Truth Behind Drug and Alcohol Addiction Through the Eyes of a Probation Officer. Michael S. Oden has been the author and my guest. Michael, where do we get copies of your book? We can get copies on Amazon, and we can get copies at Barnes & Noble. And also Author House. You also have a website, I believe. What information yeah, can they find out there? Yeah, the website is um, michaeloden.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-O-D-E-N.com, and author michaeloden.com. And are they going to be able to locate other resources that may help them if they have a, a situation that they need assistance with? Oh, absolutely. You can either you can reach me you know, at the same email address, and we can guide people in the direction. And there are also um, there are many um, social media counselors and things of that nature to get a hold of the uh, resources that people will need. You know, because I'll be glad to help get people directed into a direct, uh, put them in a direction that they will, they will benefit from, so they can get their answer. Thank you, Michael, for joining me today. The question is: If drugs are the answer, what is the question? And the book, when nobody's home. Author Michael S. Oden. Thank you, Michael, for joining me today and sharing this important bit of work. 164 pages of fascinating and wonderful detail and details that will help parents and counselors alike. Thank you again for joining me today. I appreciate your having me on board. For Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. <laughs>